true heroes of our world don't seek acclaim and they don't need it, though they might deserve it. In fact, what the true heroes of our world are doing are coming alongside of others, bringing themselves low, humbling themselves to lift others up. And what you'll find is that people who are really doing this, the people that they are around, the people that they step alongside, those people always seem to be flourishing. Barnabas, in our story, is this kind of man. I'm, I would say that Barnabas is the hidden hero of Acts. There's a commentator, his name is Barclay, and he says that Barnabas is the man with the biggest heart in the church. And what I want to do today is I want to walk alongside of you and encourage you to walk alongside of others and allow others to walk alongside of you, to lift them up. And, and here's the deal. Nobody wants to do this because to walk alongside others and to lift others up means that you don't get the acclaim. You're not fighting to be seen and loved and approved of, and we all want that. And Barnabas's power, you will see today, is that he doesn't need it and he doesn't seek it. We're going to be in Acts 11. I'm going to start with verse 19. This is God's word to us, and it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Our first point is the church in the city. Chapters earlier, Stephen has been killed. for He's a devout leader of the faith, and he's been killed for representing Christianity. And along with that, persecution began to spread to all Christians. Saul was even going into houses and having people arrested. So this movement of Christians leave. They're scattered about the land. And some of them are scattered into Antioch, a pluralistic city. A pluralistic city means it's a city with a lot of different worldviews and a lot of different religions. And what happens in Antioch is a strange and uncommon bond happens among the people who hear the gospel and believe it. And this is, this is the mark of the gospel often. When the gospel gets a hold of people, you'll look out and you'll see them and you'll say, this is a strange group of people. I never would have thought them to hang out as friends. And when I look at the Grove, I see that a lot. I mean, you guys... You don't look like you'd hang out together, but yet you do. And it's because God has formed this uncommon bond by the gospel here. And I love that about us. 
and also in Antioch. It's an interesting city. There, in Antioch, there were many who didn't, had never heard the Bible. They were the Hellenists. And as soon as the Bible enters in, things begin to change. And along with that, there was another strange thing happening. There were these cults that kept forming in Antioch. And many of the cults started looking for a savior who would come and give eternal life. Now, that's interesting that God would maybe stir something like that. I would say maybe God is causing some restlessness in the city. And so when this gospel gets there, all of a sudden they say, this is who we've been looking for. And they find him in Christ. Now, here's, here's why I like this story about Antioch, because there's some things that remind me of our area. So in Antioch, there was about 500,000 people. The Grove, in the Grove, we have people spread out from Martin County to St. Lucie County, and those two counties make up about 500,000 people, same as Antioch. And along with Antioch, Antioch is a city that knew nothing of the Bible. It, the area between Fort Pierce and West Palm, this is a Barna Group statistic that came out, is the number one area from Fort Pierce to West Palm of people who have never stepped foot into a church. Meaning we have the most of those, which means they don't know the Bible. So I just wonder if maybe God's going to do something in our area. And if it's going to happen, it's going to take faithful churches, like a lot of them. There are, there are four types of churches. There's the dying church, the neurotic church, the ambitious church, and then we have the early church in Acts. The dying church is a church that looks around and starts seeing their numbers dwindling. This is most churches in America today. And as the numbers are dwindling, they get to this point to where they say, oh no, we might not make it. We might die, this church. And then what the people begin to do is turn inward and say, what's, what's going on with us? We've got to fix our church. And they start looking for problems in the church. And they start obsessing over internal things because they're scared of death. And so they turn inward. And it's they're turning inward that's causing their death, meaning their fear of death is why they die. The other type of church is a neurotic church. This church looks out at the world and sees all the danger and sees that danger as a threat. So begins to put up walls to protect themselves from the world outside getting in. This neurotic church is not looking out at the world and saying this is a broken but beautiful world that God wants to redeem through the church, but they say this world is bad. Put up the wall, protect yourself. In this church, if it does grow, it will grow because it has found all the Christians who are also terrified of the world, and they all find their, their place to huddle in and protect themselves together. The third type of church is the ambitious church, and, and this church really will market itself very well. It will tell you things that you want to hear, and the, their look at, the bottom line is, how do we get more... Uh, people in the seats, and more dollars in the plate. And everything is filtered through that thought of growth. And this church will get very big, very wide, but not very deep. And what that means is it won't have the people in it who are able to transform a city. And then you have the church in Acts. The church in Acts cares nothing of dying. In fact, the reason the church exists is because its founder's death brought birth to the church. 
And their founder says, Christ says, take up your cross, follow me. They've not looked within, but looked without. They're not a neurotic church that looks out at the world with fear. In fact, what we see in the early church is persecution was coming. Stephen has just been killed. There are more deaths to come, but they look out at the world with love and try to win the world over to Christ. There's, I want to read this quote to you. It's from Martin Luther. I find it fascinating he says this. I don't know why. It just doesn't seem to be the type of person that would say this, but look at what he says. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but the devout people. And then he's he's saying this to the church. He says, Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing, who would be spared? And what he's saying is, if Christ up in the heavens looked down like the neurotic church, he would have said, I'm not going. And we'd all be doomed. But instead he came and he chased us down. And then this early church is ambitious, but it's not ambitious about itself. It's ambitious for the kingdom of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Just think about this. Would you rather build your kingdom or God's kingdom? Just honestly. I think if you're honest, you're probably going to say, I think I'd rather build my kingdom, but don't tell anybody. And you see how hard now it, it, it is to become this early church. It's very rare. And as this church in Antioch is being birthed, the church in Jerusalem hears about it, so they send Barnabas to the church. And when Barnabas shows up, he fans the embers of Christianity into a wildfire. This is our second point. How, how does he do this? What is so special about Barnabas that when he gets there, the church just blows up? And the answer is he did parakaleo ministry. The, the way it's translated in our verse is exhort. Now, whenever, here's the problem with this word. Whenever you're reading through the Bible, it's translated in different ways a lot. And the reason it's being translated in different ways is because there's not a great English word for parakaleo, which causes a problem for us. And it causes a problem for us, especially because this word is one of the most used words when it comes to describing inspiring people and when it comes to describing words that you are speaking to people. So we've got to figure out what this word means. It's often translated as encouragement, but that doesn't quite hit the mark. So, okay, parakaleo. Para means alongside of, beside. Kaleo means to call, but it's a call into a purpose and a meaning and a mission, and it's even a call into danger. But the good news is you've been called into danger, but you have para beside, which means you have someone there to comfort you in the midst of the danger and the mission that you're on. The word is both tender and strong. It's love and it's truth. And somebody that embodies parakaleo, they call you into courage, but as they call you, you recognize that they have courage themselves. Like you can't call somebody to do something that they, you don't already have. 
So they're courageous people. But at the same time, you can tell they've gone the distance. Like they have walked a lot of miles, meaning they know what it's like to be in your shoes. And they're empathetic. And they feel the weight that you feel. They can articulate back to you how you feel, maybe even better than you can yourself. And they say, I get it. But let's go do this. And they're gardeners of people. They're sympathetic and loving, yet they insist on the truth. And you trust them. You trust them because they've honored you. They have listened well to you. They understand you very well. Yet they keep on calling you into moxie. They keep on calling you to be someone of grit and of courage. Like you start living differently because of them. And it's not like they're being pushy. It's just that they're inspiring. They fan the flame within. And Barnabas embodies this so much that they nickname him son of encouragement or son of Parakaleo. And you have to understand this type of ministry is face-to-face. It's side-by-side. It's not something that's being done really right now. I mean, I'm looking at your faces, but like you're sitting beside people looking at me. And this, it's kind of weird, I, I guess you could say, but this is, it's good and it's right. But this is not enough. You need more than just this. In fact, I would say that if I devoted the rest of my life to becoming the greatest preacher the world has ever heard, it would never be enough for you. Because you need people in your life to come beside you, to bring themselves low and to lift you up. How much do you need this? Hebrews 13.3 says, exhort one another, parakaleo one another, daily. You need it daily. And that's why you need the church. That's why you need what's, what's happening here, but you need one another throughout the week. There's a proverb that says, He who isolates himself seeks his own desires. And this is what this means. It means if there's something you want that's not good for you, the best way to get it is to isolate yourself from the people, to separate yourself. Do you know why? Because if you do, because if you've got a bunch of encouragers, if you've got a bunch of Pericaleo people around you, they're going to see you run off into something that's not good for you and they're going to run after you and pull you back in. But if you want that thing that's not good for you, you isolate yourself from them and then you get what you want that's not good for you. You need the church. And you need a church that's doing parakaleo ministry. And, and, and it's not, here's what it's not. It's not truth without love. And it's not love without truth. And probably a lot of you have been hurt by the church. Not the Grove, but you've been hurt by the church in general. And po- Here's probably what you experienced. No love and a bent truth. And if that's the case, I want you to know that's not the church. It's an imposter. It's something that has dressed up like the church, but it was a charlatan. It was a fake and it was a fraud. I'd argue that distrust in the church today is primarily because the church has been failing to do pericaleo ministry, and it's always the first to go. If you're a church that's dying, you get scared, and so what's going to go? Well, pericaleo ministry is going to go. If 
you are a neurotic church, Parakaleo ministry is going to go because you're scared and you're going to isolate yourself. You're not going to call people to go out, but you're going to say, let's get safe together. The the ambitious church is not going to do Parakaleo because Parakaleo doesn't make any difference in what their aim and their goal is. So what does this mean for you? Well, this is our next point. Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor, theologian, and assassin. Yeah, he was an assassin. He was on the team that was seeking to to take out Hitler, and they were caught, and they ended up being executed. But while all this was happening, he wrote a book called Life Together, and you could describe this book as his dream for what the church might become. And he has this quote, quote about pastors, actually, but I want to apply it to us. He says, a pastor should not complain about his congregation, certainly never to other people, but also not to God. A congregation has not been entrusted to him in order that he should become its accuser before men and God. Now, an accuser finds the sin in someone and condemns them. Finds the sin and condemns. Barnabas comes alongside and lifts up, doesn't tear down, but lifts up. And I know it's easy to complain about people. And I'll tell you what I have seen when pastors get together and they start talking about their congregation and it starts taking a downturn. I want no part in this. And it's so easy to do. And it's not because I'm a good pastor. It's because I know what I'm like and I know how easy it is to go down that road. And as soon as you go down that road, you start hating what you do. And I love what I do. I'm honored to do this. And I love you guys. And I love to be able to do this. And it's so easy to fall down that road. And two, what it's saying, what, what Pericaleo is, well, it's the opposite. It's, uh, what I basically want you to do is, I'm saying is, don't complain about others. Don't gossip about others. Because as soon as you gossip, you're accusing them and you're condemning them to others. To gossip is to confess someone else's sin. Well, they're not around. There's nothing that they can do about that. And then to tear them down. Now, why are you doing that? Well, because you want to feel a little bit better. We all want to claim, and if we're not getting it, well, let's tear people down. And it's it's really easy to accuse people. I had a pastor friend that I was um, hanging hanging out with one day, and he was talking about his... Um, congregation and I said man it sounds like all you're doing is like calling your people out for their sin he's like yeah that's what we're supposed to do I said no it's not we're called to love people do you know what love is part of loving people is enjoying them which means I need to be enjoying you you need to be enjoying me you need to enjoy each other that's what love is and if all you're doing is calling people out on their sin then people are going to see you and they're going to run the other way because you are not joy for them You are a terror for them. You're destroying them and bringing them down. And here's why I say this. Here's what it means. Every single look you make towards your sin, you should take five looks at Christ. And if you're going to be a Barnabas to somebody, and if you're going to call someone out on their sin, you better point them to Christ five times before and after that. And what we're trying to do in our discipleship groups is parakaleo ministry. So we... Here's what we do. We have four areas in our discipleship group, and I'm not trying to get you to get in one, but well, I am. But uh, 
We're immersing in the gospel. We're praying together. And then we're calling each other to our purpose in the world. And then the last thing is we're encouraging each other or counseling each other in the gospel. The last two are parakaleo. And this year we've been, we've been really focusing in on our calling in the world. We kind of slacked for the last couple months because we needed to make some pivots or whatever, but we're going to get back to it in, after summer's over. But anyways, next year we're going to have a major focus in on encouraging each other or counseling each other in the gospel. We're going to take a lot of time training our leaders in this. But I want to tell you something. Don't wait for next year. Take responsibility now. In your discipleship groups, if you see people that you're beside because you're beside them, you fight for them. I think to bring the kingdom of God, you could say it in another way. Fight for your friends. Do pericaleo ministry for them. And be like Barnabas in your home, in your neighborhood, and in your workplace. There's a story called Lord of the Rings. And if you don't like the story, just, well, still listen to this, but you should like the story. There's, there's this ring of power Man, I so, every time I do this, I sound so dorky. There's this ring of power, and they have to take this ring and cast it into a fire to destroy it or the world will end. So they gather this team of people in this story, uh, her- heroic figures, like there are warriors, there, there's a wizard, there are kings, and there's even these angelic-type creatures. And the writer of this story says, those actually aren't the hero. There's another, there's a little half-size hobbit who has to carry the ring and throw it into the fire. And then the writer says, and he's not even the hero. He says the hero of the story that he wrote is a gardener who made a promise to his friend that was carrying the ring. And his promise was, I'm never going to leave your side. Never going anywhere. All the way to the end. His name is Sam. And the story would not end well without him. And I want to read to you, this is, I want to read to you him doing parakaleo ministry to the guy who's supposed to save the world, making him really the true hero. He says, it's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo. Mr. Frodo's the ring bearer guy. The, one that really, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger, these stories were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it'll shine out the clearer. I now know folks in these stories had lots of chances of turning back. Only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. That there's something good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it is worth fighting for. That's Pericaleo ministry. And you see in this story, Frodo is the one that ends up getting all the acclaim. And Sam is totally cool with it. He's fine. Because he's good, like he doesn't need it. Now, How do we become like Sam? How do we become like Barnabas? And how do we not want all of this acclaim just to gather it up for ourselves? Because, you know, 
I mean, it feels good, right? Well, next point, the Holy Spirit in you. Barnabas is filled with the Holy Spirit, and it seems to be an uncommon filling. And that's the trick of this all. That's the key of all of this is what we tend to do is that's how I should live. So I'm going to muster up the strength within me to go and do this. I need to be a better father. I need to be a better wife. I need to be a better parent. I need to be a better friend. Whatever it is that we need to be a better of, we say I'm going to muster up the strength to do it. But this is saying that Barnabas didn't muster up any strength. It was outside of him. And the Holy Spirit then came into him, which means he was completely dependent on God to become the person that God had called him to be. Dependence. And look at what, look at what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit does parakaleo ministry to us. He's called the comforter, the guide to truth, the inspirer, and the helper. Another place, a name is given to the Holy Spirit, and the name is paraclete, which is the noun form of parakaleo. This word has to do with being like an advocate or a defense attorney. So what's a defense attorney do? Well, the defense attorney stands by your side and defends you as you are being accused. So like, look, it's like the opposite of gossip. You're not, you're not being accused of something. You have someone defending you as others are accusing you. Or... In, in especially the context of this sermon, how is the Holy Spirit being an advocate or a defense attorney for you? You are your own worst enemy. You sin. And then after you sin, I know I'm not supposed to say that you sin, but, but let's just go with me for a minute here. You sin. And then you feel all this guilt and shame, but the world tells you, no, you didn't sin, it's okay, like don't feel so bad about yourself, but there's a problem. You do. And just telling yourself not to feel bad about yourself doesn't seem to work. So you, you come over here and you're feeling all this guilt and your shame and you're sad and you're bummed out about yourself. And you look at other people and because you're sad and insecure now, you want to tear them down. Because if you can just tear them down just a little bit and accuse them a little bit, then you get lifted up. Or maybe you're at least above them. Like uh, C.S. Lewis has this quote, oh man, I'm going to mess it up. It's something like pride really doesn't care about how much you have or of something, but it's just so you have more than someone else. That's really what you want. And so we tear people down and then the Holy Spirit in you starts knocking on the door of your heart saying, hey, what are you doing? Have you forgotten about your first paraclete? Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, in John 13, Jesus, Jesus is going along with his disciples and he says to them, I'm going to leave. And when I leave, I'm going to send you another paraclete, another advocate, another defense attorney. And what that means is Jesus is the first advocate and the Holy Spirit is the second advocate. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to point you to your first advocate. Because it's in him that you get the acclaim that you so desire and seek. It's like we're all like scrambling around like hardworking ants. And you know what we want to hear from all this hard work? And whatever it is that we're working so hard for? We just want to be loved. 
Like we just want to be cherished. And when Christ dies for you and covers you with his perfect righteousness, his perfect goodness, when the father looks down at you, he sees the perfection of his son and he sees you and he says, well done. And he looks at you and he cherishes you and he loves you. And in this book, Zephaniah, it says he's singing over you. That's what you want. And the the Holy Spirit's job is to say you get all of that in Christ. So look at him. And when you look at your first paraclete, Christ, what do you see him doing for you? Parakaleo ministry. Because he was beside the Father up in the heavens. Para. And he came down into our world. And he went right to our side. Para. And he started fighting for us. And he could have complained to the Father. There's plenty he could complain about with us. At least with me. And instead of gossiping to the Father in his prayers... He sought to bring himself low. And instead of saying, give me a claim, because he would have deserved it and would have been right for him to do it, he didn't. Instead of taking a claim, he took blame. And he went right to the cross. And he was crucified there with our blame, with our sin. Like he was accused. And instead of defending himself, he took it. Like he was without a defender. He was alone, naked on the cross, being blamed for something he didn't do, but he, he took it because he wanted it. He took your sin. He said, it's mine. Give it to me. And there, finally, we said, all right, I'll come to your side. And humanity comes to his side and takes a spear and shoves it in his side. And then pushes him over the cliff into the fiery death of hell. And when he got there, he started fighting. And he fought against all sin, death, and evil so that you might be released from this evil thing in you that wants a claim because you're getting it now. And instead of fighting for other people for it, he lifts you up, releases you from this evil so that now you can stand up and fight for your friends. And even right now in this moment, do you know what Jesus is doing for you right now? He is beside Para the Father, And he's being an advocate for you right now because he's looking down and he's saying, Father, you see them? Yes, I know what they've done. I felt it to the core of me on the cross. And I paid their penalty. And I died their death. And I rose and they've clung to me. So now they are mine and I am theirs. So then he says to the Father, they are ours and we are theirs. That is happening for you right now in this moment. It's happening for you in the middle of your sins. It's happening for you no matter how great you're living or how horrible you're living. He is always doing this for you to the Father. That's good news. And that will make you do that for others. When you see someone is always fighting for you, you now have the moxie, the grit, the courage to start fighting for everyone in this room and everyone out there, even your enemies. Let's pray. Jesus, you have been so kind to us to come to our side. Even when we wanted nothing to do with you, 
you still came and you still fought. Even as we kicked and screamed against you, you smiled at us and loved us still. And we love you for that and we praise you for that. We thank you for being our advocate, our paraclete. And we thank you for the ministry of you coming and fighting for us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. Like us on your favorite podcast provider. Follow our social media at Grove Church PSL. And check out our website, thegrovechurch.co.